Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment. I'm thrilled to tell you about today's very special guest. Mary Farmer is not just an internationally recognized caustic painter based in Asheville, North Carolina. Mary Farmer is a lifelong soldier for the causes of social justice and women's rights. She has been tireless in her pursuit of liberty and justice for all, even putting herself in harm's way as a young activist growing up in the South. In terms of her arts practice, Mary's caustic paintings seem to provide a counterbalance to her firebrand spirit. Interestingly, much of her imagery in her work creates sort of a portal to a more timeless and transcendent state of consciousness. And for those of you wondering what exactly caustic painting is, uh, you will soon find out because Mary explains it all in this great conversation, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Before I talk to Mary, though, I want to thank you for tuning in to our 108th episode of the Not Real Art Podcast. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows helps ensure you won't miss new shows, and it makes the algorithm God's happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. March is International Women's Month, and we are going to celebrate in a big way. To help us celebrate and honor the power of women, we have asked artist and friend Aaron Yoshi to take over the podcast during the whole month of March. We're giving Aaron complete creative control of the podcast, and I know it's going to be awesome. Aaron's going to honor some amazing women in the arts and share incredible stories. So heads up and stay tuned as we celebrate International Women's Month in March with Aaron Yoshi as your fearless host here at the Not Real Art Podcast. Now, speaking of strong women... Today, I'm talking to one of the strongest I've met. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Mary Farmer. Mary Farmer, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. I appreciate it. I tell you what, you're classing up the joint. I, I'm like, I'm so, I'm so honored that you're here. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Time will tell, right? Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. Are you a podcast listener? Do you consume podcasts at all? I love podcasts. I listen to them most of the time in my studio. Sometimes I have to switch to music. Depends on, you know, what's going on with the work. But true confession, I'm really into those murder things. You know, they are so popular. By the way, fun fact, like most of the artists that I talk to that I ask this question to, and I try to start with this question because it's, it, it's a good way of like level setting and, and discovering new podcasts. But majority of artists love crime, murder, it's horror. Really, it's a thing. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's not heavy lifting. Right. right. I, for instance, you know, I'm working in caustic and I'm making like a thousand decisions a minute with that wax because I have to know how hot, I have to know who's coming up through the layers, blah, blah, blah. And if it's like a book where I have to concentrate and know who the characters are, I can't do that. I just tune it out and don't hear it. 
But the murder stuff, who cares, right? You've heard about it. And if You're I miss dead it, anyway. right, somebody's dead, so who cares? No, kidding. It doesn't require all that mental space. That's why. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's good background stuff for you as you're focusing on your work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you been a guest on a podcast uh, previously? What? Oh, my God. This is amazing. Wow. I'm even more honored. You know, there's nothing quite like your first time, right? And uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're not and, going there. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, I, you know, like, like, well, hopefully this experience will be enjoyable enough for you that you uh, want to do it again and again with other podcasts. I hope I don't ruin you this first time out. But, uh, well, it, it is great to have you here. And, you know, we've sort of known each other for a while. And I've just been a big fan of yours. And of course, your husband's and of course, your work. And so, you know, so I've been wanting to have you on. And I'm so glad it worked out. I mean, you know, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, I had grand plans to come out and do a visit. And I wanted to have you guys show me around. And then of course, you know, life, you know, with two kids under eight, you know, sometimes it's just crazy. And then of course, we have, you know, 2020 that comes around and shuts us down. I mean, how are you guys holding up? How have you fared during 2020? Well, we're that certain age, so we're being careful. We have to be very careful. My family's all in Alabama. Uh, several members have had COVID because, you know, excuse me, Alabama, but y'all were stupid, just stupid with the, the restrictions. So Michael and I have been pretty careful. Our big social outlet is porches eight feet apart from our friends, and that's just about it. We have to pay attention. We're excited about that vaccine, and let me just say up front, I'm in the line. I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. No, I mean, one of the analogies that I heard that I that really resonated in terms of this this uh, pandemic is that, you know, in terms of the virus, it's it's as if there's an active shooter in the building. I, and by the way, this is a tragic analogy, right, that we even have to use this metaphor, but like it's as if there's an active shooter in the building, but the the shooter's invisible. Right. So you have to be that much more defensive and that much more uh, rigorous in your defense. And so kudos. And it, it is that you guys are taking it so seriously. I know we have been quarantining rigorously. My son is asthmatic. So, you know, we had to really double down on that for him. But in terms of your practice, in terms of your work, I mean, in terms of, you know, I've spoken to a lot of artists who, at least initially, of course, were maybe having a hard time adjusting to what was uh, really an unknown entity. Some artists were finding great inspiration and, and, and being quite productive in the early days. Some weren't. Some eventually figured it out. Some eventually didn't. I mean, how did it impact your practice? Did you, did you skip a beat? Did you just keep, keep running? Like, how, how did it play out for you? It changes. But in the early days, you know, when we weren't quite sure, we came under a shutdown order here. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. And we came in a shutdown order pretty early on. However, my studio is in an off-the-beaten-track sub-Rosa space. So nobody knew I was here. And true, true, I did kind of break the rules. But I wasn't around anybody. I have my own facilities in here. You know, I, I have my own heat and air conditioning system. I didn't share any space with anybody myself. And I took that first time. And, you know, then we thought we were like, Maybe 12 weeks under quarantine is what we thought at that point. So I took that opportunity just to play. I just took work I didn't like, work that I hadn't finished, all that kind of stuff. And I just, I invented a whole new technique that I started using and, oh, and that's just cool. pushed it. It was really cool. And because I was feeling no pressure from outside things, I just let it flow. And that was really, really fun and, and good for my brain, I have to say, really good for my brain. And then something just shifted 
and I got slammed with commission work. I feel like what happened is everybody was in the house and they go, oh my God, that is the ugliest wall I have ever seen. I'm calling Mary right now. And the one I have just finished is very special to me. It's Friends. And her birthday is the 26th of December. Could that suck anymore? Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah so her husband has commissioned a special piece to go across from, it's a place where she sits. It's the first thing she'll see in the morning and the last thing she'll see at night. And he said, I looked at that wall and just decided that's not suitable. So I wanted Sheila to have one of your paintings. And I'm so happy about that. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. Well, your your paintings have such a, you know, this is a very oversimplistic way of putting it, but it has such a positive vibe about your work. I mean, there's they, the, the, your work exudes an energy that is soothing and calm and, and refreshing and reassuring and empowering. Thank you. That's, you know, that's the mission of my work. I feel like sometimes I stumble over these words a little bit, but I feel like that we all have this problem where we, our space, our personal space, we don't give it to ourselves. And particularly now, you know, we're all jammed in our houses together. We're fighting for the computer and the, the bandwidth time. When you go out, you're, you're cautious about everything. So the lack of stress-free space for our personal comfort and shelter, I I think is extremely important. And it's a life thing. This will be a little heavy, forgive me, but this is how it came about. When I was a little girl, I, I finally got that that language where I could tell my parents that I was being sexually assaulted by a neighbor. And just get, having the language and getting that out, you know, I felt it was uncomfortable. I was violated. I felt ugliness and I felt terribly ashamed. But I got great strength from that. And I knew that I was going to have to take care of myself. And I knew that I was not going to let that person define me. So I take that time. I think that space is very important. I understand it very well. And then some like 50 years later, I decided I was going to climb a mountain. So I trained for a year. Nice. I woke up on a cold gray morning, much like the one I'm looking at today. And I reached the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. I touched the sign, Uhuru. Fuck wow. you, crowd boys. Uhuru. 19,131 <laughs> feet. And you amazing. Know, I got amazing strength from that. And I knew if I made up my mind, I could do it. That's incredible. That's incredible, Mary. I, I had no idea that you were a survivor. How old were you when you found that language to be able to tell your parents about this? Oh, my gosh. I think I was in the second grade. And, you know, it was an astute school nurse who realized that those stomach complaints were much more. It helped me through that. And so now when I see, oh, no more funds for school nurses, no more counselors, no more this, I know, I know how important they are. And following that, you know, there's a whole, this was, I guess, early 60s. So we didn't have counselors in the police. That that was all different. But what I did have was a summer art program. Mm. And I was in San Diego, California. That's where I'm from. Yeah. But that summer art program saved my life. It really did. It, it gave me a place to put all those feelings and all that stuff. And I did a bunch of political art in art school. Like I was finishing up my BFA at 9-11 and, you know, I did that. We shredded the constitution and then I frantically was trying to sew it back together. This was Patriot Act stuff and that sort of stuff. And I just came to that realization that if I wanted 
to fulfill what I felt like was my place in the art world, it was going to have to be, as you described in my work earlier. In preparation for our chat today, of course, I, I went on your website and I, I had read I read your bio, which I had not read before in all candor. And, you know, I was going to ask you about your bio because, you know, one of the things that I love, first of all, I have this, you know, this, there's, a, there's a bone I have to pick with artists generally, which is like, why do most artist bios suck? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean they're, they're horrible. They're boring. I mean, I'd rather get a root canal than read some of these, you know, fucking, you know, bios that artists write. And, you know, and I read yours and it was just, it was so, re- I mean, I mean this in obviously the best way, because uh, there's some heavy stuff in there too, but like, you know, it was so refreshing. It was so human. And, you know, you were, you were contextualizing your art within the experience of your life and in, in really sharing your journey. And, you know, and I thought, wow, this is one of the best artist files I've ever read because it is just so real and so human. And a little that I know, of course, there's even more to it than, than what, in, you know, than what you share on the, on the website. But, but yeah, art has saved your life. Totally. It, there's no question in my mind. Um, my father was actually very creative. I had the coolest playhouse on the block. I mean, it had framed windows and built-in shelves, and we lived right on the edge of a canyon, so I had this major yard, you know. It was really, really cool. And my mom was very practical. So when the time came, I wasn't thinking very seriously about what I was going to do with my life post-high school. Let me back that up just a little bit. I grew up in Southern California, but my mother is Southern. And so we moved to Alabama the year they integrated the public school, if you can only imagine what that was like. I mean, in my elementary and junior high school, Gary Hom and I were best friends. I was used to a multicultural experience. I had no idea. I didn't know about segregation. I didn't, I think at that point I couldn't understand what racism was. And I remember coming, there were two, two black children coming to our school too. And the anger, you couldn't believe it. And I came home and I said, mom, what's going on? These people are really mad. They're scaring me. What's happening? And she went, I guess we're going to have to have this talk (laughs) about what it is. And I was kind of like a foreigner to them. You know, I had the wrong accent. My clothes were different. So me and these two black children were the outcasts. We had to struggle to make it happen the whole time. Their, Their struggle, far worse than mine. You know, I had that privilege of white skin that sooner or later I was going to fit in. But I remember that so well. Do you have any idea what happened to those two kids where they are today? I don't. I I don't really know much about anyone from my I had to leave that environment, really. I, I could not tolerate it. I left Alabama as soon as I could because, forgive me, I, I hate to do this dissing, but it, it's just I went to, I think it was the 40th high school reunion because it was so small they put all the classes together so I could go with my cousins and stuff, you know. And everybody who friended me on Facebook, I had to unfriend. They were gun nuts. They were racist. They're Trump supporters. They're people I, I'm just not going to be able to be around because I cannot tolerate those attitudes. I really can't. And one of my besties here, she's also from Alabama. And every day we're screaming, God damn you, Alabama. Why are you? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, well, my, you know, my dad's side of the family is from the South. And so I get it, you know, and I do get it. And one of the struggles that my dad and I had, quite frankly, was when I started dating black women. 
And, you know, and it was, you know, I graduated from a high school that had 680 students. We were the third largest high school in the state. Out of those 680 students, uh, you know, we had two or three black kids, you know, uh, maybe a dozen Latino kids, and most of us were white. And so when I started dating women of color in college, of course, you know, I think initially, you know, my dad thought, oh, you know, it's a, it's a fling, it's a phase, you know, he'll, he'll work through it. And of course I didn't. <laughs> I got stuck. And, you know, he and I went to blows, you know, listen, I mean, but it's a, there's a happy ending because my dad loved me more than he loved his ideology. And we had some very hard, difficult conversations, but I'm very proud of him. And uh, it turns out an old dog can, can learn new tricks and, you know, and he, and this was of course, 20, 30 years ago now, but boy, oh boy, does he love his African-American grandchildren. Isn't that wonderful? It is. And you're right. If, if you don't want to hate, you don't have to. You really well, you're not don't. born that way. You're exactly. not born that way. Exactly. And I think these are people who want to wallow in that misery and I don't want any part of it. I really don't. Well, it's interesting because I mean, you're a fighter. I mean, you're a firebrand. You're, you're an, you're an, you're a, you're an activist. You have that fighter spirit, that warrior spirit, and yet your art, you see your art and it just is so soothing and it's so calming. I mean, how do you reconcile those two, those two extremes? What is that? You know, are you ever tempted just to go all black? (laughs) (laughs) I've done it. I've done it. Okay, so you went through that. Okay, got it. I really, I feel like I did that early on. I really, I did a whole lot of work and some of it was pretty rough, but I, I felt like I had to get that out of my head and my heart before I could move on to what my real work was going to be. I didn't know then what it was. And yes, I'm a fighter. You know, I started in the early 70s. I opened up abortion clinics in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. So I was a little crazy, quite frankly, (laughs) because those were hotbeds of hatred. Well, no, no. You know what it is? You're a pragmatist. You know women need a healthy, safe choice. They're going to figure something out. And if they don't have a healthy, safe choice, they might do something worse. And God damn it, uh, a white man should not have any jurisdiction over a woman's body or what she chooses to do with it. Uh, you know, like how this is a fucking debate. <laughs> I don't understand. But. I have no idea. I have no idea. It's, I mean, the politics of women and sexuality, I could go on for hours about this. And, you know, if you you think about you're going to tell me when to have a child, I was not mother material. I chose not to have children. I'm grateful every day that I don't have children because I wasn't that person. You know, I was out there in the streets fighting for things. And it was going to my friends used to say this to me as a long time ago, just so you know. But they say, so here's Mary with kids. Hey, I've got my date. What are you doing tonight? (laughs) But, oh, my gosh, I. You know, that education was amazing. I was in my early 20s and I would have to go down to the legislature to talk about to stop some of these issues. In those days, we could we could make a a few changes. And I'll never forget this because the the sexism involved in it just makes you just want to scream all the time. So there was a thing about sex education and it was about to be tied up in an anti-porn law, sex education, which, believe me, they needed it desperately. So I thought, oh, this can't work. So we go to the committee meeting and on the way out the door, everybody who came into our clinics had a, an extensive, not really lecture, but education about contraception to help you make your choices and what was available at the time. And so I remember we had some 
contraceptive foam. And this was called fun foam because it was flavored. We won't go too far with this. (laughs) So I took that to the committee room with me. I was like, all right, all right. Because this box had descriptions on the outside that would have come in this anti-porn law, which was just ridiculous. So I take it in. Each, and there was only men in those days, each guy around that table spent an inordinate inordinate amount of time with that can of fun foam, let me tell you. That bill did not pass. But that's the kind of nonsense that we had to put up with. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Well, God bless you, Mary Farmer, because the fact that you were on the front lines, really putting your own personal safety at risk for the cause. And I know a lot of people who love to talk, but there's no action. And you're action-oriented. Yeah. Well, that clinic in Birmingham that was bombed, that was my clinic. I was gone by then. It took me about three times to realize that the super glue in the locks (laughs) was really intentional. And after about the fourth flat tire, I was like, you know, somebody's doing this to me. This is not an accident. I'm not driving through that many construction sites. So it... You know, that super glue and nails in your tire was pretty mild compared to what goes on now. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting because certainly there are so many reasons to be pessimistic and, and, and have doubt these days about the state of our union. And yet there are, I would argue, you know, areas that give us hope and, 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 and understand the progress we've made. You know, my wife and I were having this conversation you know, vis-a-vis our daughter, who's eight years old, when Kamala and uh, Joe were giving their speech just days after the election or a couple of weeks after the election, you know, my eight-year-old daughter wasn't as focused on the event uh, as, you know, maybe her grown parents had wished she might be, because, of course, for us, it was historic. And what Channing and I were, we started talking about, I said, well, actually, this is normal. It's historic for us, but for her, it's normal. Right. Because her first president was a black man. Her third vice president is an African-American female of an immigrant family. You know, so for for my daughter, this is just her normal. Now, you know, we have to stay vigilant. We have to keep at it. We, you know, I'm, you know, we can't rest on our laurels. We get the democracy and we make not the one we deserve. But that gave me hope. You know, it's like, OK, you know, we are making progress. It's it's sometimes two steps forward, two steps back, one step forward. two. You know, I mean, it's a dance. Right. But. Yeah. Where, where are you finding hope? I mean, there's lots of things to point to that we can be angry about. But but where do you find hope these days, Mary Farmer? Oh, well, this election was really, really important. I, I was not going to make it if we didn't if we didn't pull this one out of the hat. Seriously. And my hope is watching the young people come along. I was pissed off at them for a long time. I felt like that they were just kind of coasting because really, you know, I've been doing this since the 70s. So I'm a little tired, quite frankly. And I mean, this has been balls to the wall for the last four years. I mean, we haven't had any choice. And I took that resist pledge pretty, pretty seriously. And we resisted at every turn. You know, in Asheville, we turned out 7,000 people for that first women's march. This is a place of 90,000 people. That was pretty significant. So there, there are great, there's great activism here and many opportunities. We are a city that has voted to look at reparations and we'll do something about that. We're about to remove a monument to a slave owner in a very prominent place in downtown. So the work continues and you find hope in all corners like that. I mean, beautiful things were happening during the quarantine and the shutdown. The restaurants got together and they were like, 
uh, we're baking. We're taking this to to this housing area and to this housing area. Will you bake so-and-so? And, you know, we're making sure that the kids get their meals. One in four children in our county are are hungry. So it's got to be worse now. Right. Right. For sure. The other thing, oh, I, this is most important, actually, is I work with a group here. It's collective giving. It's women's collective giving. We call ourselves Women for Women. And we've given away millions of dollars. We established the the Justice Center here, you know, and it's all for safe environments for women and girls. And that work, without it, my head would probably explode. I need that work. Mary, with all of your activism, how do you find time to work? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, it's incredible. It's incredible. Are you, you must not sleep. I mean, what, what, what is your, what is your practice like? I mean, is it a, is it a nine to five kind of full-time job where you, you just are super rigorous about it? Like take us through your day. Yeah, I am super rigorous about it because, you know, people think I'm in here playing and while I have great joy from what I do, it is work and it is my job. And I'm probably pretty quick to say that to somebody, oh, Mary's just going to the studio to play. No. I'm working. Thank you very much. And what I notice is you have to guard that time jealously because people will think that I'm just standing here making pretty pictures and it's fun all day long. For the most part, that's true. But, you know, there is, like I said, I couldn't listen to a book because I'm thinking. Yeah. So I do. I come in. I was late this morning because it was cold and ugly, but I usually come in between nine and 10 and I leave late in the afternoon when I'm just out of energy. I work on these panels, so some of them are heavy, and it, it, I just run out of energy by the late afternoon. No, I, I work Monday through Friday. I take the weekends off in most cases, although I am working this Saturday because something else is going on. But And if you need to make a special appointment to see me to come in the studio on Saturday or Sunday, I'm happy to do that. But I rest on those days. You know, I take it easy and rest. You know, I might have written some postcards to send to Georgia. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But that's how I do it. And the activism gets worked in. It's just, it's, I think it's just in my DNA. I don't know where it came from. Nobody else in my family is like this, but it's in there. And I just, I just make it work because I can't rest unless it does. In terms of your studio practice, I mean, do you have multiple works sort of in progress at any one time? Are you focusing on one work at a time? What does your workflow look like? in a practical sense. I do work on multiple pieces. Now, because I work in encaustic, I'm fortunate that I have that quick drying thing. You know, I don't have to worry about drying. I've been doing some drawings lately because I was working some stuff out, which means I pull out the oil sticks and things like that. Those things take forever. I may, I may die before they dry. <laughs> well, let me, let me stop you there because for our listeners who maybe don't understand encaustic, it, it really break, unpack it for us and help us understand what that process is. So encaustic is this horrible word. It's just an old word and it means to burn in. And there is nothing excessively toxic about this. The, the caustic part of that word tends to put people off, but there's nothing, you know, great studio hygiene is what you have to do, ventilation, that sort of thing. And that's it. And uh, most of us working in this day and time understand that. I mean, those people in the past, man, they did crazy stuff in their studios. And if you see that Ninth Street women, somebody's smoking over a can of turpentine. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my gosh, she's got a cigarette in her mouth. <laughs> Suddenly it's performance exactly. art. <laughs> I don't do any of that. My studio, I do use propane and butane. So I, I keep a fire extinguisher in here just in case. To date, I have set nothing on fire. 
but it's melted wax. So the beeswax is, is the vehicle, just like oil is the vehicle for oil paint. And the pigments are actually in the wax. And my studio is this line of hot plates. I have four or five lined up now. I keep a big uh, electric skill of something we call medium, which is beeswax and some Damar varnish in it. So you can polish up that beeswax a little bit and it's a little more flexible. And my work has to be on a rigid surface. So there are really two rules of encaustic. It doesn't like water-based stuff and it doesn't like a flexible surface. And beyond that, it's open. And so I have to get everything cranked up in the morning. It takes about 30, 45 minutes for everything to melt and get ready. And that's where I make my phone calls, do a couple of things, that sort of stuff. The wax gets ready and I start on the pieces and I keep them up on a wall around me, particularly the ones that I'm working on so that I can look at them for a lot. And when I do a commission piece, I put it up and then when I think it's done, you know, I have to study it just a little bit. So I hang it on a separate wall away from the others because they're all talking to me. So I have to get it away from that chatter and just see if indeed I'm done. And usually that I like to look at them for two or three days after I think I'm done just to be sure. And you'll hear many artists say that. When is it done? That's a that's a tough decision sometimes. And it's for me, particularly with encaustic, it's easy to go over the top and be like, oh, man, you know, so then you have to scrape that back and come back to wherever it is you want it. And that's an interesting way to do it because we scrape in. And so this is concealing and revealing all through the process, which is, to me, quite exciting. Who so? You know, encaustic as a as a medium as a process. How did you discover it? Who introduced you to it? You know, obviously we you know most of us start with you know basic pen and paper. <laughs> we might graduate to paint, to watercolor, or whatever acrylics or oils. I mean, you're my first guest, and certainly maybe one of the first artists I've talked to that that works in encaustic process. How did you discover it? How did it discover you? So when I went back to school for my BFA, I thought I was just going to be a famous oil painter. <laughs> that was my, I wanted to get better at oil painting. If I say so myself, I was pretty good at it. I kept transferring schools. This is a funny thing. I went first to one school, but it was not rigorous enough for me. If they, There were no academic standards for this school. If you could write the check, you could get in. And so when I took all the painting for that, I was not challenged. So I transferred to Georgia State in Atlanta, which at that time was this really gritty inner city school. And I loved every moment that I was there. I mean, it was just awesome. And we, you know, we had to throw elbows to get studio space and do our photographer work and all that, but it was fabulous. And I had to do something called a critique class. Part of my transferring around meant that I couldn't graduate from Georgia State till I had done X number of hours in their institution. So I had taken everything, you know, I was done. And I was given the opportunity to write my own program for a summer class. So I took a summer semester, I wrote my own program. And I was back there thinking, I knew this many weeks in advance. And I was thinking, thinking, thinking. And I go through my last senior critique class and they're like, oh, wow, another great painting from Mary. Are you challenged by anything? And I went, hmm, not really. I could make this painting, but I'm not really challenged. That's interesting. And I started looking around and this is, encaustic was just kind of on, you know, the horizon out there. It wasn't really popular. There was some of it around. And just about that time, my friend Joanne Matera wrote a book about it. 
And that kind of brought it forward. And one of my professors at Georgia State is an accomplished encaustic painter. Uh, and I was like, hmm. So I went to her and I said, what do you think about this? This was the coolest thing. I had to go find a studio in downtown Atlanta. I couldn't stay on campus because they just didn't have room for me or the electricity, quite frankly. And so that's the big thing in an acoustic studio. You need a boatload of electricity. And so I found the studio and two professors were my guidance counselors, if you will. And they rotated every other week and came into my studio to critique the work. So I went and I taught myself encaustic in this summer program, which was really great. And then I realized how stupid I was. And the paint makers are up in New York. They're called RNF Paints. And they do really great intro. It's much bigger now than it was then. It was very small. And so they would do this really great three-day class. So Michael and I went up there and he read books and I painted for three days. And that's, that's how it came about. There's a thing about encaustic is now that I've been doing it so long, I can see an early painter because it's so cool with the heat. You know, you can make all this swirly stuff and it's, it's awful. You've got to get it out of your system because it is really fun. Like, oh, look at that. Look at that young babe exactly. having fun over yeah. there with the swirls. Really white stuff. I've seen it so many times and I go, come to my studio. Let's talk about this. It takes 10,000 hours to master a skill. Do you feel like it took you 10,000 hours to, to sort of master encaustic or did your background in oils and in, you know, academic study sort of help you sort of uh, expedite and uh, truncate the learning process for you? Yeah, I think it, it just takes the doing. I, I, I would stand with the 10,000 hour thing. The other thing is also this material, you cannot have a pre preconceived notion. You know, you have to go with the material sometimes. So when you stop that fight, it, for me anyway, when I stopped that fight, I want this to be blah right here. When I stopped that fight, the work got much better. So, so the so the wax and the process is talking to you all the time, all the time. We have conversations. Like sometimes I have to turn paintings around. They're yelling at me, you know, and I'm like. Whoa. That's really fascinating. So, so whereas, you know, maybe a more conventional illustrator or painter would have, might have more control over the output or the outcome. You're telling me that in encaustic with the waxes in the process, really, it's almost a symbiotic kind of relationship between you and the medium and the medium is revealing and, and really you have to figure out how to see, how to watch and how to observe and discover what it's trying to say. Exactly. Certain pigments, you know, they'll rise to the surface faster than others. You have to know that. Certain ones, when they heat up, they will flare up if you're not careful. So you have to know. This is why I use propane and butane, a little bit of a heat difference, a temperature difference, not significant, but a little bit. And it makes a difference in what I'm fusing at the time. And the heat is to keep those layers of wax on the panel they could delaminate if you don't heat between layers. So that's why the heat is so important. And some people use heat guns. Some people use the actual flame. The flame is faster. And I do something I call shimmer the surface, which means I get it all liquid all at once. And it settles down on this beautiful, smooth surface, which is something that I've known for. And then I carve into it. <laughs> right on, right on. So help me understand, I mean, are you putting the pigments into the wax and then applying the wax, or are you putting the pigments down on the on the surface and then covering the pigments with the wax? You can do all of that, but encaustic itself, the pigment is actually in the wax. And so I have these little pans, these little metal pans that sit on a hot plate, and there's wax in them and the pigment. 
it's clothespins so I can lift them off and take them. And as it starts to cool, I have to put it back on the heat to warm it back up because it gets really thick and glumpy. Sometimes you want some thick, but mostly I want it that nice, smooth liquid. And the minute you take it off the heat and put it on the panel, it starts to dry. So you have to paint very fast. Got it. Got it. Mary Farmer, what is your principal complaint about being an artist in the art world? Oh, ha. that nonsense that artists write or we're encouraged to write like things like artist statements. Oh, my God. <laughs> the eye rolling that I have done in my time about artist statements. And I've had to write a few myself, but I. I'm not doing that. I, you know, I have this mission. I described that to you earlier. That's what my art is about. And and this whole notion about, uh, I don't know, a specialist. Art is special, but it's it's accessible too. And I that whole thing about keeping it separate, you know, it's only for certain people. That just drives me crazy. The exclusionary elitist attitudes are vex your soul. <laughs> yeah. Art is important to all of us. We know that. There are studies after studies after studies about how art affects your space. In Michael's office, just before he sold his business and you met him in California, as you might imagine, he had a lot of art in his office. <laughs> and when they went to look at suitors for the company, I remember his partner coming back and going, oh my God, we can't work with those people. Do you know there's no art on the wall in that office? And I was like, you're right. You can't work with them. These are soulless people. It speaks volumes. Yeah. 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 These are soulless people. So there's a, you know, a snottiness part that I just, I just don't like that. I, it's useless. And I don't know what that serves, but some people like it. I think sometimes artists are suspicious of each other because of that kind of stuff. You know, we're, we're sort of set up for it. I tend to think that I am generous. And when a young artist or an established artist comes to me and says, I need help. You seem to know what you're doing marketing. Really, I'm faking it just like everybody else, but I'm doing it. I'm happy to share. I, I don't have any secrets. I don't know anything special. You know, I post every day. There you go. <laughs> we don't talk enough about business practice, right? How artists handle their business practice. And I understand it's like, you know, taking your medicine or exercising or, you know, doing your homework. It's, it's uh, not the fun stuff. We all want to be painting. We all want to be creating. We all, all want to be making. But if you're a professional artist, you have a business to maintain. How has your business practice developed? How do you approach managing your business, Mary Farmer? Well, I agree with everything you said. It is a business, and I look at it that way. I was incorporated. I have an accountant. I use QuickBooks, which P.S. is way above my pay grade, but I use it because they, you know, it helps my accountant. I have copyright stuff. You can't steal my work. I had licensing agreements. Uh, it's a business and I see it as such. And yes, some days I don't like doing that part. It's two sides of my brain. And Michael will know when I have been painting or when I have doing business. He can tell by the way I, I come home and interact. How much wine you drink that night? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which one side of the brain, please? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it's a real cop-out for people going, oh, I don't want to market my work. I don't, well, what the hell? Are they just going to come running down to your studio and buy the stuff? No, they're not. You, you have an obligation. If you believe in your work, I happen to believe in mine. If you believe in your work, your obligation is to share it with that public. Well, and it's changed a lot too, right? I mean, the tools to share your work has, have been democratized. 
you know, for so many years, right, it was it was there was sort of one business model and everybody sort of aspired to get a have a gallery represent them because then the gallery did all the all the heavy lifting of the sales and the marketing and the promotion. I didn't have to worry about as an artist. And, you know, of course, getting a gallery to represent you was also a, a sort of an accreditation of your value or whatever as an artist. So but with the digital revolution, with the amazing tools that we now have to self-promote, self-market and direct to consumers, buyers, boy, has the, the playing field been leveled. And it's a very empowering, you know, but, it, it, but it's also fascinating. I mean, I definitely see a disparity among artists in terms of those who who embrace these tools and those who don't and it's 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 interesting you know i think a lot of times it boils down to you know artists i'm sorry but you know like so many people are fucking lazy they're scared you know they don't want to do the, the heavy lifting that goes they just want to play 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 and make art 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 which is great but don't complain when you're broke that you're not making any money because you're not accepting responsibility for your own business well, you know, if you're a lawyer, you have to go out and get clients. Same thing. They're just not running over you. You have to be known for whatever kind of law you practice. I, I have no patience with that stuff, quite frankly. If you just want to go play, you're in my way. And it makes the rest of us look like idiots, quite frankly. You know, the, the serious ones, we have so much to overcome from that, that whole notion of the starving artist. Well, that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. Yeah, there, there's nothing romantic about anyone starving. I, I mean, what, what the fuck? Where did this come from? And the fact that artists are going to embrace this as some sort of like this martyrdom that artists want to embrace. If you're a martyr, you're dead. I mean, that's really it. If you got rent to pay. And, I, you know, by the way, I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm talking about making a living, paying your bills. If you want to, you know, feed your family and put your kids through school or whatever the case might be. God damn it. You better handle your business. You know, but I've heard, you know, time and time again, you know, stories of artists being exploited in so many ways. Mary Farmer, how over the years, how have you been exploited and screwed over by the establishment, by the so-called art world? Not too many times. Well, I was paying attention. You know, I, I'm fortunate that I came through this. I came to my art career a little later in my life. I was in my 40s. And so I understood. About, I, remember, I ran abortion clinics. Come on. <laughs> You're going to cross me, really? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't born yesterday. Mary Farmer wasn't born yesterday. Come on. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking of galleries not paying their artists. I'm thinking about organizations asking artists to work for free or exposure and all that stuff, you know. Those are things that I quit very early on. And, you know, that thing, it's my favorite. Somebody said it to me recently. Oh, you'll do so and so. It'll be great exposure if you'll give me a painting. I was like, I don't need it. Thank you. I'm giving you a painting. I will write a check to your organization, but I am not donating my artwork because it is worth more than the $50 that somebody's going to pay for it. That's, that's the most important part of this, that realize what your worth is. And when you set a price on your painting, don't discount it. I think retail is going to change forever. I think the gallery, forget it. Don't discount it and don't give half of your profits away to your gallery because they're not doing what they used to do. You know, it's a it's a space, it's a wall, it's a website. So it's not like that full service thing that used to happen. And I think artists have to step up and take a big responsibility, take our power back. It's a systemic issue, right? And and on so many levels, you know, for those kids that went to art school, I mean, art school doesn't teach you these skills. You know, they they they, they teach you how to make art, then they throw you out into the you know big bad world and uh, sink or swim. I was invited to 
an art class. I think they were seniors and they just, you know, to talk to a, a living working artist. And I said something about, and you know, you should have your images and so-and-so DPI. They didn't even know what I was talking about. These are seniors about to go out into the real world. And I was just mortified for them. And this is the digital, you said, I mean, you know, these are dig- kids born in the digital yeah. age, you know. Yeah, they didn't yeah. know what I was talking about. They're way younger than me. And I was like, man, um, hmm, how are we going to deal with this? The business part of art is different from other businesses. I understand that. You know, we're, if you will, it's kind of a luxury market. You know, it is it is not something you must have. It's not food. It's not shelter. But it does feed your soul, and it is something that many, many people want. So it's up to you to find a way to deliver that. A hundred percent. And, you know, you hit on a couple of things there. This idea that for me, it's it's a lot about how you think about what business you're in, right? And if you want to be a painter and sell paintings, okay, you're in the, the paintings business. I would argue that it might be better for us to, as artists, shift our thinking and start imagining that we're actually in the intellectual property business, And when, you know, for me anyway, when I think about being in the intellectual property business, that sort of shifts a lot of things. And and one of the things that shifts is that I own my IP and therefore there's, there are rights issues. You know, suddenly you can have conversations about licensing and, and and you even think about media management differently. It's like, okay, if I'm in the intellectual property business and I can monetize my IP and make money when I sleep because I can, you know, sell my rights then I'd absolutely better get a high res capture of that canvas for my database, image database, because that painting will sell, but I'm going to keep that image and I could license it and so on and so forth. And it, it's just this interesting shift. And, you know, boy, oh boy, I wish, you know, art schools and art practitioners and, and students would begin to shift their thinking because I feel like it would be a net positive for them in, in our world at, at whole. It would be a great service to people coming out of art school. It would be an absolute fabulous service. You know, to put the reality in front of you, you have to understand you are in a business just like everybody else. And you have to find your market. You have to work on that market. You have to have stellar customer service. If I say my painting is going to be done in eight weeks, that sucker is done in eight weeks. And it's probably on your wall at that point. If anything is slowing me down. I don't know what it would be. I have not failed to deliver yet, but anything I call and I say, I'm having a little trouble right here. It may take me an extra week. And most people are fine with that. Keep them in the loop, you know, tell them what's going on. And particularly now with people going out of business left and right in this horrible, horrible time, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. We are in strange circumstances, but you must deliver stellar customer service at this point. I couldn't agree more. And that is one of the things, right, that we could and should be doing to uh, bolster our, our business and our revenue. I mean, you said it earlier. I want to go back to it. Understanding what your time is worth. And, you know, again, I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm talking about making a fair living wage. So, for example, and I've said this to artists in the past, it's like, listen, how much money do you want to make in a year? How much, you know, what, what do you think would be a, a good fair living wage for yourself? Well, if I could make $100,000 a year, I'd be set. Great. Awesome. I'm glad you know that. Now, let's work back, right? Like, let's let's divide 
let's figure out how many hours and let's figure out how much we got to be charging per hour for our time. It's okay, whatever it is, $37 an hour or something. Okay, well then at the very least, now you have a baseline for, you know, manage your time, figure out how much time you have in your work, you know, materials, mark it up, you know, a couple of, you know, once or twice or three times, that's your profit margin, that's your negotiating area. And then, you know, if you can sell that work, and do the things that you're getting the money back for your time. And then you make $100,000. But it's it's not going to happen on its own. You have to make it happen for yourself. But of course, these ideas are, they're commonplace, right, in the, in the, in the business world, so to speak. But it's almost heresy in our world because, of course, we want to keep these things exclusive and precious. And because, of course, it's not in the art world's best interest to democratize art. They want to keep it a luxury item. Well, and that... and. You just give up your power. If you're not taking that responsibility and going, okay, for me, I go, I have to sell X number of pieces a month, depends on the size, to pay my rent, pay my internet bill, you know, buy the next supplies, have money for Mary, because I actually put the work in, so I think I should be paid for it. Understanding that and knowing where those levels are, it's really, it makes you feel so good because you get it. You're just not in there with your head down, not paying any attention, you know what you're doing. And it really, it makes you stronger and better as an artist. Well, and I've been on my soapbox in recent months and over the last couple of years, really, about this idea that that we have to figure out, and I say we in a broad sense, but artists and art world, of course, you know, the powers that be in our world don't give a shit about this, but this idea of nurturing and developing a mass market for artwork. And what I mean by that is, I mean, People don't want to think of and most of the conventional wisdom. They, they don't think of art as a mass market product because that, of course, is the antithesis of what art is. How You know, as we think of art as being a very you know precious thing. However, in my experience, there's way more art priced, original art priced. And I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm taking judgment out of it in terms of quality or what, you know, like execution. Do you like it or not? Is it good art or not? I don't care about that. I'm talking about price point. From a hundred bucks to five thousand bucks, there's so much more original art out there, priced between a hundred bucks and five thousand bucks, than five thousand and above, and way more people to buy that art from a hundred bucks to five thousand bucks. That's a mass market product for me. That's a mass market that has been underserved and and not nurtured, and at the artist's expense. Uh, that's why you know artists starve because, of course, there's no real mass market for their artworks, and yet it's priced to sell. Most people, if they love a piece of art. That's five hundred. You know, can afford a piece of art that's five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, and 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 we built these mythologies right around you know what is or isn't art and, and who is or isn't an art expert. You know, I say, listen, we're all art experts. If you believe beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then I'm the expert because I know what I like. Right. Well, I think that's important, and I say frequently to my clients, this needs to make your heart sing. If your heart sings, then you need that. Yes. Yeah. You, you said it earlier too. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, you didn't use this word, but you were talking about it feeds the soul. It's a spiritual product. Right. And you know, if, if, if do, do I, my basic question is, do I want to look at this every day? Do I want to see this every day? And if the answer is yes, <laughs> you know, I buy it, you know? And by the way, the other thing too is, you know, I have a piece of art in my house that I literally found at a flea market, I bought it for five bucks. I reframed it. I probably get more compliments 
on that one piece that I got for five bucks. I mean, people think if, you know, God knows what they think I spent on it, you know. Anyway, I just, you know, I, I feel like people need permission to define art for themselves, right? Well, that's part of that whole, we've made it exclusive and, and not available to you nonsense. You know, I just think that's ridiculous. I, I was talking about the importance of art. I'm going to read this. It's just really one sentence, but this is, this is why art is important. Art accelerated all development of language, cognitive skills, reading, Adults engaged in the artists as children were even more civically engaged than those who weren't. So this is what art does for you. It's incredible. And in the state of North Carolina, our number one business is agriculture. And our number two are the creative markets. $45 billion. So artists, you are worth it. You know, you are contributing a massive amount to the economy of your state. So take that power and make it work for you. 100%, you know, and I don't know, and I'll send this to you, but in 2015, uh, Ernst & Young, right, the accounting giant, partnered with the United Nations and with the Society of Composers, Authors. uh, And so for the first time in 2015, the study that was spearheaded by Ernst & Young quantified the value of the creative uh, industries, as they called it, globally for the first time ever. No one had ever quantified the value of the creative industries. Now it was across 11 sectors, okay, 11 verticals, visual arts being one, performing arts, uh, of course, architecture and music and film and television. You know, the number they came to in in 2015 was $2 trillion. The creative industries accounted for $2 trillion to the global economy. And by the way, I would argue that's underperforming, right? At $2 trillion, it's underperforming, in part because, you know, of course, artists don't handle their business well and, you know, all those things. But this is the power, and you have to wake up to your power before you can start advocating for yourself and fight for your rights and stop being exploited. And, and one of the things that, that really bums me out is the defunding of arts education, right, uh, globally. And, you know, listen, I went to a public school. It was, it was a great public school. We had a fantastic tax base. Uh, We had a robust academics program, of course, a robust sports program. But we really, and this made the difference for me, we had a robust arts program, not just visual arts, but music and theater and all of this. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, we can't have a a world or a country of one-dimensional thinkers who don't have a well-rounded education, a liberal arts education. I completely agree with that. And, you know, when things really hit the fan... It's artists who think our, think and create our way out of it. You know, you need us on those front lines. Of course, what's going to happen when we get you through it, then you're going to slaughter us. But <laughs> you need us to get through it. You really do. You need creative minds. And think about your life without visual arts, without music, without theater. How awful, how really, really awful that you're not engaging in the in the cultural offerings. One of the reasons that Michael and I are here in Asheville is because of that. It's a rich cultural area. And craft, and I'm not talking about bows and bunnies, but craft is a very important part of this. You know, we have Penland School that's been here for a very long time. They brought glass here. Glass blowing is an amazing thing. We have glass blowers who actually have their shops in downtown Asheville. Yeah, I've never been to Asheville. I hear it's just such an inspiring, rich community. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. It truly is. We've given over a little bit too much to tourism. 
we're at a crossroads. I think we're thinking about that. We elected our first all-female city council. So it's going to be interesting to see the choices that are made. We are 360 mountains, and we have buildings going up blocking the views. Now, that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's... that's you can make them low rise. They don't have to be high rise. I mean, it's happening everywhere, it seems. I mean, I don't care if you're in Seattle or Portland or L.A. or what have you. We're building, we're building, we're building. And yet, a third of our country that's, you know, impoverished, uh, if not more than a third, uh, and they can't eat and provide, they can't afford health care. They can't afford education. You know, what the, what, what, you know, what the hell is happening? You know, it just takes will and we just can't seem to get there. Well, I'll tell you what, though, with people like you, Mary Farmer, fighting for the cause, we're going to get there. And you are such an inspiration. I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able to get together and talk and, and share and bond over our mutual love for, for not just art, but for the common good in this country. Why is the idea of the common good so hard for people to grasp? Why is that? Why do people call that socialism? Yeah, I don't get that. First of all, I think they don't understand socialism. And that's a very long discussion about public education. But I think that's part of it, that words have been charged and people don't really understand their meaning. And, uh, you know, what I just said a second ago, it's the will. I don't understand why the will is there. We come from this place of scarcity. We don't want anybody else to have it. You know, and I don't believe in that at all. I believe there's plenty out there. Let's just share it and spread it around. What the heck? I mean, how many cars can I buy? How many garages can I fill? How many rooms in my house can I live in? How many shirts do I need, really? Yeah, my wife My wife tells me all the time, how many black T-shirts do you need? After <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, well, apparently I need all of them. I don't <laughs> Exactly. But there's plenty to go around if we it's just the will and it it's reframing all these arguments. And I, I don't want to go into this one, but because it's a long, long conversation. But for instance, defund the police. That is a terrible slogan. I completely agree with the theory. But we have got to reframe these arguments because there are 70 million dumbasses out there. Excuse me. I'm sorry. No, but true. I'm so Speak the truth. Come on. Out there who believe that, you know, COVID is a hoax and and all that nonsense. And we must reframe these arguments. We have to. I'll also suggest that, and call me naive, call me romantic, because this will probably never happen. But, it, you know, because I am a, I'm sort of, I'm sort of a, a systems guy. Like, you know, I like to think of things in terms of systems. And I'm also kind of a, a root cause guy. Like, I want to find, like, the drivers. Like, you know, and, and there, you know, there aren't silver bullets in life. But sometimes there are bullets that are more silver than others. And uh, you know, my I just going keep going back to, you know, we will continue to have these same problems and they could even get worse until we get serious about education reform in this country and educating our citizens to be the smartest, most well-informed, most critical thinkers on the planet. We will continue to, you know, have these same problems. And but of course, you know, the re Republicans doesn't don't want education reform because they know that educated people tend to be more liberal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, you can't make these decisions without good art programs. Critical thinking is a significant thing that is developed in an art program. And there's that great bumper sticker, critical thinking, it's a endangered species. It's just sad because we could do it. 
we could do it very easily. Yeah, and, and art, the arts is sort of such an afterthought. I mean, for years, right, they talked about STEM, STEM, STEM. And then finally, like a couple of years ago, they changed it to STEAM because they realized, oh, shit, we're missing the arts. We're missing the A, you know? It's like, hello, hello. We've been screaming that from the very beginning. I was like, okay, math is important, but so is art. Come on, so is art. Oh, my gosh, I know, I know. We could go on and on. I'm just so charmed, Mary, that you sat down with me today to, to talk about this and and will you, will you come back and chat more in the future? I'd love to. I thank you so much for having me. I, I've enjoyed it. It was really great catching up with you. And thanks for letting me talk about all these things I care about. So for our listeners who don't know your work and, and are just learning about you for the first time, where can they find you online? Where can they see your work? Do some shout outs to promote your work a little bit here. So I've been at this so long. My website is actually maryfarmer.com. <laughs> Not, not even MaryFarmerArt.com. It's Mary Farmer. No, it's just MaryFarmer.com. Everybody's like, how'd you do that? I went, well, it was a few years ago. <laughs> I'm Instagram at MaryFarmer828, which is my area code. Fantastic. Fantastic. And just reach out. Anybody has any questions, I am happy, 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 happy to talk with artists about their business practices, about making encaustic paintings, because that's what I know about any of this stuff, if they want to take their activism to another level and find out how to apply it, I'm happy to do that too. Reach out to me, please. Yeah. Well, Mary, thank you for that. That's so important. I feel like, you know, artists have to support artists and, you know, it, it can be a lonely kind of occupation, profession, vocation, you know, alone in the studio, cranking out work. You know, we don't have those water cooler moments where colleagues can come together and support each other. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we wanted to create the podcast to, you know, create a water cooler moment for artists to understand that they're not alone, that their struggles are not unique. We're all fighting the same fight. And by the way, some of us have maybe figured out a better way of managing. And so to hear from their fellow colleagues such as yourself, I think a really important service that I hope our podcast provides. So tell me, Mary, what does the rest of your day look like? What do you, what are we working on today in the studio? <laughs> my commission piece, I, it's time for me to undo the edges. I tape up the edges so that they're nice and clean. The tape comes off, the fittings go on, and it gets delivered next week. I'm looking at two things on the floor here that are waiting for my attention. So I'll be busy. So are you telling me that you do your own crating and shipping? Who, who does your art shipping for you? I wrap my pieces in a, a special paper to keep the wax from sticking to anything, and then I put something that's called a packing blanket on it. And then I take them to UPS. If it's close, I deliver it myself. You know, if it's really, really close. But no, there's a guy here at our UPS store who knows how to handle art. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. So that's one of these days I'm going to have art movers on the podcast because there's a real art uh, to the art moving. Yeah. And finding, I mean, when I moved to Asheville, finding the shipper and finding the panel builder. <laughs> The first person I found to build panels, they all warped. Can you imagine? I had my first show up in Asheville and panels were popping off the wall. I was horrified. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I was in tears. I was like, oh, my God. Man. I mean, how do you, well, I have to ask that. How did you handle that? Because, I mean, that is a nightmare. That is a real fucking problem. Well, I talked to the gallery person. I said, I'm so sorry. This is someone I have just started with. I, I don't know. We were able to take those panels and just peel off the cradles and put them back down. But it was a nightmare. All I could do was apologize, you know, just go be very upfront about what happened and make it right. 
Well, and that again, right, gets to professionalism, just owning your shit, owning your shit and the good and the bad. And just, you know, because that's really what people just want, transparency, honesty. They want they want action. Right. And be, be, be uh, solutions oriented. Right. But wow, what a fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah. My first show, my first show here. Can you imagine? By the way, you probably still have nightmares about that. Right? I do. I think about that. <laughs> I don't know how I survived that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Just keep showing up. That's how you survive it. You just keep showing up. Keep keep doing the work. Keep showing up. That's a great place to wrap up today. Mary Farmer, thanks so much for your time. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Not Real Art World. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at notrealart.com. Sourdough, out.